For many of us, normal life ground to a halt during the pandemic. For Luke Workala, his life is about to start anew. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Noelle Crombie, criminal justice reporter for The Oregonian and Oregon Live, talks about Luke Workala's story. Workala was convicted of murder in 2014 and acquitted of the same crime earlier this month. It's a remarkable story that legal observers say is virtually unprecedented. We talked about both trials and what comes next for Workala. Here's our conversation. Noel Crombie, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Thanks for having me. We've had a lot of interesting criminal cases in Oregon in recent years, but the story of Luke Workla is one of the more remarkable. Can you tell us about Luke and how he ended up serving life in prison? Sure. Um, first, I-, I wanted to tip my cap to Garrett Andrews, the court and crime reporter at the Ben Bulletin. Garrett covered the Workla trial, gavel to gavel, and the Bulletin has covered this case extensively through the years. This is a big story in Central Oregon and on the coast where Luke Workla is from. So if you're tuning in from Central Oregon, this is my plug to consider supporting your local paper. Um, but yes, the Workla case um, is an interesting one. Not so much because of the facts, but because of the outcome. The case dates to 2013, and that's when uh, Luke Workala fired a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun at his friend David Ryder. Uh, The two had been drinking that day. They were at uh, Workala's house in Bend. Uh, Mr. Ryder died from his injuries, um, and Workala was convicted the following year and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 25 years. His conviction, though, was overturned in 2018 by the Oregon Court of Appeals, which ruled that Ben police detectives should have stopped their interview with Workala when he asked for a lawyer. That ruling sent the case back to Deschutes County Circuit Court. Uh, Workala was tried a second time this spring. And and here's what makes this story so interesting. Uh, this time, a jury found uh, Workala not guilty of murder or of manslaughter. Uh, and today, he's, uh, he's a free man. Uh, and that is an extraordinary outcome. I, I talked to many prosecutors and defense lawyers this week and asked if they could think of a similar situation. Uh, you know, a, a conviction in a murder case followed by an acquittal during a retrial. And they couldn't think of any in recent history. One uh, cited an infamous case um, from the East Coast in the 80s involving, uh, this was like a really sensational case, uh, involving Klaus von Bülow, who was convicted, but then later acquitted of twice trying to murder his heiress wife. Um, but there was really no no comparable similar case in, in Oregon that folks could think of. Kind of sounds more like a movie than anything else or or TV drama to have that type of outcome. It's not something that uh, seems based in our reality. Very dramatic. So um, let's go back to, I mean, this is a guy who was a, he was a writer, right? And And a journalist. Yeah, he was a, a freelance writer, uh, regularly uh, doing features on businesses and arts um, in uh, Astoria for the Daily Astorian and for uh, magazines in, in that uh, area and also for a small paper um, on the uh, Washington coast. And, um, you know, he 
he asked for an attorney who was not allowed one during his questioning, which is something that we, you know, see a lot in, um, in, in terms of cases falling apart. It seems like that's a common thread nationally where, um, you know, you you have a right as a, as a citizen to ask for an attorney. And that was something that the court of appeals determined was, was not allowed to, to Mr. Workla. Yeah. The, the initial interview with, uh, Luke Workla, the, the initial police interview was pretty fascinating. He spent considerable time with patrol officers. Um, it was early morning hours uh, mm-hmm. in, in February. He, he spent a considerable amount of time with them waiting for detectives to arrive. And those exchanges were recorded and there's, there's a transcript uh, of their conversation. And, you know, and it's clear in reading the transcript that the patrolmen don't they don't want to get into the investigation because they're waiting for the detectives. So they engage in this long uh, and meandering conversation with Workala uh, on this really wide, surprising range of subjects from, you know, like the singularity of Willie Nelson's songwriting, the (laughs) value of a philosophy major in college, the uh, artistic intentions of Michelangelo. It's sort of this wild read, and but police are clearly trying to keep him distracted but talking. And then detectives arrive, and at one point, Workla says something like, uh, "You know, I, I appreciate the hospitality here, fellas, but um, I I'd like to have a lawyer. I'm I'm going to get a lawyer, something to that effect." And mm-hmm. and then the con- the conversation continued for a short time after that uh, with the detective. And the Court of Appeals found that Workala's mention of an attorney should have brought the interview to an immediate stop. What were kind of the arguments in, in the first trial, which led to a, a conviction and um, a sentence of uh, life in prison? And, and did they change at all with the with the retrial? The case by the state was largely the same in both trials. There were no uh, eyewitnesses to what happened between the men. Um, and so in these intervening years, it, it, there wasn't like a new eyewitness that came forward or, or new forensic information, you know, forensic evidence that, that had emerged. Hmm. Um, so it was essentially the state put on the same case. Uh, they they uh, told jurors that, you know, the forensic analysis showed that there had been some sexual contact between the men. Um, that uh, and, and in the inner closing argument in the second trial, uh, the senior assistant attorney general, uh, Kristen Hoffmeyer, who presented the case, made it clear that, you know, look, the state doesn't know exactly what happened, uh, but both men were very drunk. Uh, things sometimes happen when people are severely intoxicated and that perhaps Mr. Workla had contact with Mr. Ryder that he regretted and so he killed Mr. Ryder. Mm-hmm. Uh, she pointed out that, um, you know, uh, Mr. Workla, you know, got left left the room and went and got his shotgun put on some pajama pants you know so like there was a mo- you know some time or thought before he then uh, came back to the living room uh, racked the gun and and fired on on uh, mr Ryder um for the defense uh the the defense has always been the, the same you know workla never disputed that he shot his friend. I mean, that was another sort of interesting aspect of this. This case is not a mystery. This is not a whodunit. Right. He has acknowledged from the beginning that, yeah, he, he killed um, Mr. Ryder, but he says he did it in self-defense, that he passed out on the couch, awoke to 
um, Ryder pulling off his pants and sexually assaulting him, and that in his telling, the two of them scuffled. Uh, Ryder left a mark on his neck. Um, he Merkula got up, went to his bedroom, retrieved the shotgun, came back out to the living room, asked Ryder to leave. Uh, uh, Ryder refused. Mm. Uh, Urkula racked the gun, and and instead of of you know leaving, uh, Ryder charges him, and and Urkula fires at him. Uh, in the in the second trial, the the defense um, they uh they 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 did a couple of things uh they mounted a more vigorous a robust response to the state's theory that Ryder's arm was in a defensive posture when he was shot uh and they and also this the other thing that uh, that was a, a difference um is this the state kind of steered clear of characterizing Mr. Ryder this time uh in in kind of any positive terms because uh, that perhaps knowing that that would have opened the door for the defense to uh, introduce witnesses who talked about negative brushes they had had with Ryder. So you never really got a, a clear picture of Mr. Ryder in, this, in the second trial the way you did in, in, the, in, the, in the first. We should note that uh, the men were not alone in the house. Um, uh, Workla's uh, girlfriend at the time and her children were, were in the home as well. Yeah, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's son, and his girlfriend's nephew were in the house, both of them boys. Um, and they didn't witness what happened, but they did hear a commotion and they heard Workala uh, make a statement about killing Ryder. So ultimately, did the did the jury in the, the second trial kind of decide that this, you know, they did buy the argument that this was self-defense? Well, they they found um uh, Mr. Workla not guilty of murder and also not guilty of manslaughter uh, in the first degree or the second mm -hmm. degree um i was unable to reach uh, jurors or speak with them uh, they did tell uh the ben bulletin one at least told the ben bulletin that the state uh, simply had not made its case okay so you have had a chance to to talk to luke workla what's his mindset like now uh being a you know a free man after what eight years in prison yeah uh prison in jail yeah uh, i met with him um on the oregon coast and he is still adjusting and re-entering uh society he had a flip phone uh when i <laughs> met with him at one point, he uh, he was getting his driver's license. He was going to be taking his a, a test to get his driver's license that week. He um, at one point during our conversation asked if he uh, basically asked permission to get up and get uh, have more coffee, um, and, and you know then caught himself and said, "You know, I'm so used to asking permission to do basically anything." Um, and so I think he is. Uh, you know, trying to adjust to life as a free man. What's he want to do with his life? You know, he said he wanted to do some writing. Uh, he is hoping to write about his experience and and also um, maybe shine a light on um, you know, prison conditions and, uh, and criminal justice reform, um, given his experience. Let's take a break and come back and talk a bit more with Noelle Crombie about her story uh, about Luke Workla.
Okay, so you spent a couple hours with uh, Mr. Workla at the coast, as you mentioned. Um, you know, this is also happening his both his retrial and kind of the last year of his life um, in a pandemic. Uh, did you talk about that at all with him about what what both of those experiences were like? You know, I. I... I didn't really touch on that with him in my interviews, but I did speak um, at, at length with the with his defense team. And, um, uh, you know, this is one of five murder trials that were, was held during the course of the pandemic in, in Oregon. And um, it was held in you know, really unusual uh, in a really unusual setting instead of the Deschutes County uh, courthouse. Uh, it was moved to the uh, Deschutes County Fairgrounds, you know, a place that hosts you know, the rodeo, 4-H, and right. junior achievement meetings out in Redmond. Um, and the, everyone in the in this uh, kind of this courtroom, uh, this makeshift courtroom, was spaced um, six feet apart. Uh, people were in masks. Uh, in fact. Um, Lawyers said it was it was difficult. You, they realize how much we rely on uh, looking at people's faces in the course of communicating with one another uh, because the questions it was just hard to communicate um, with masks on. Um, they, um, they they also you know this was this was held in in, in a in a room where the you know the judge was sitting on this kind of. Uh, you know, makeshift bench. Um, the audience was sitting, you know, f far back. So, um, you know, all of the social distancing provisions um, that uh, were, you know were taken in in the in the trial. Workala was telling me though too that, you know, he 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 enjoyed that as not enjoyed, but he he appreciated that aspect uh, compared to the court compared to his experience in Deschutes County because. Here he got to get outside. He got to take this drive to Redmond every day, see mountains, um, and uh, he was in a he wasn't held in a in a holding cell or or anything during you know bre during breaks. He was held like basically in a large room, um, and you know he just he preferred that setting to to being in the courtroom. Yeah, I, I can imagine a little bit more uh, a little more elbow room. Yeah. As well, as right. well as the views on the way. Um, so what? Uh, he's been he's been out of uh, out of custody now for a couple weeks. Couple weeks. I mean, it's still early on, but I mean, wh <laughs> how is he processing all of this? I mean, because like you said, he never he never um, said that he didn't um, shoot and kill Mr. Ryder, but you know, he was. Uh, now he's a free man and it's a very different reality. How is he processing all of this? Yeah, I think, you know, I think he seemed honestly to be, um, you know, not in a state of shock, but really in a state of, of, pro of as you say, of processing the experience. He had braced for conviction for a guilty verdict. Um, he, uh, and that would have, at least on the murder charge, would have uh, resulted in a mandatory minimum of life with a minimum of 25 years. Um, so he he was uh, he described being in a really heightened state uh, as that verdict came in, and uh, there was you know a lot, just a tremendous amount of of emotion and anxiety around that. And when he heard uh, that the jury 
um, was was split, that was a, a key signal that something you know really extraordinary was going to happen. That basically he he was not going to be convicted of, of murder. That he wasn't going to go back to prison for life, and and so uh, he he has talked about when when I when I met with him, he was talking about really just sort of getting used to ordinary things, you know, um, being by himself, you know, not hearing the din of a, of a jail or prison setting at all hours, um, not being shackled um, and, and liberty, basically, really still just adjusting to this concept that, uh, you know, he's his own man. You mentioned the non-unanimous jury piece. Um, Oregon, you know, had been such an outlier for uh, years now with its uh, uh, ability to um, have people be convicted with non-unanimous juries, but that doesn't apply to acquittals, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah, Oregon's decades-long practice of, of allowing split verdicts to convict felony defendants uh, was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court last year, but that does not apply to non-unanimous verdicts when it comes to acquittals. So when we hear these stories nationally, whether it's an innocence project led effort where someone who spent decades in in custody and then they're they're free, um, it, it seems like it's usually a long time coming. I mean, this was a long time, but it was not decades. But it's kind of this weird time period where it's like, you know, it's multiple presidential administrations. But you know, you know, now he's forty. Um, I don't know how how, how is he. Uh, how has he kind of thought about everything that he's missed while on the inside? Well, you know, I think that's an interesting point that you raised because, you know, he, he talked several times and in my interviews with him since, uh, you know, over the past week about this to-do list that he has. And, and he feels this kind of urgency to be doing a lot of things because he missed out on a lot of time. And, you know, he emerged to his parents, you know, being older and, and, and having uh, health conditions that they didn't have when he went in. And so that's, that's time that he lost. He considers, you know, the loss of a relationship that he had with his girlfriend at the time. He did they did get married while he was incarcerated, but their but their marriage dissolved under the mm. just the pressure of incarceration. Um, he he considers that a, a profound loss, um, and and so I he he's he said trying to um, he, he feels this pressure to get through this this list of things that he wants to to do and of things that he's missed. Um, and in fact, I just asked him yesterday. I can't remember the question, but he's like, "Yes, I've added that to my list." Uh, and so I think that is something that that he feels pretty acutely that that loss of time. I did ask him though, you know, he, he's clearly you know feels this enormous relief uh, to be uh, out of prison, mm -hmm. and the case is now it's completely behind him. You know, he, he's he will not be uh, retried. This case is squarely in his past. But but I asked about you know the reality of having of killed someone, of taken a life, and he and he said that that is a heavy burden, and and he said that that's something that he will have to bear for the rest of his life. Did he share uh, any of the specific things that are on his list, uh, things he wants to accomplish or do? Well, one of the things he mentioned um, was he he wants to um, thank the jurors in his case. He he he. That's something that he hopes to be able to do is to um, reach out to them and express his gratitude. 
there weren't any other other details like uh, climb a mountain or you know write. A, I guess you mentioned write a book, but anything else left out to you? Uh, you know, it sounded like his list at the moment is pretty nuts and bolts, and um, building a life again, uh, in getting um, himself sort of in a place where he feels normal again. Uh, that that's sort of the priority. Well, it's a remarkable story. Is there anything else about about the case or about your conversation with uh, Luke Workla that you would want to add? I don't think so. I think you've covered it. Well, thanks so much for your reporting and for taking time to talk about it. Thanks so much for your interest. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Noelle's story in the episode notes. If you value stories like these, the best way to support us is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod supports. If you like this podcast, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts or tell a friend. Until next time.